This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode includes... Our wacky Gen Con adventures. And Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. Now it's another edition of Travel Advisory, and unusually for Travel Advisory, we both travel to the same place at once. Uh, this is our exciting Gen Con Wrap edition. Due to uh, temporal leakage from Ken's time machine, oddly enough, we are speaking about Gen Con as if it was just a couple of days ago, even though when you're hearing this, it is a couple of weeks ago. And so, Ken, it was the usual crazy whirlwind experience of sensory overload and uh, gaming wonder and uh, sometimes ego gratification. Yeah, I, it's been some years ago that I noticed that Gen Con was too big for any one person, no matter how centrally located or uh, beloved by their peers and uh, fans, to do correctly. It, even back in Milwaukee, it was impossible to get to the auction and to the minis and to the uh, uh, gaming events and to the do the dealer's hall all the way through and uh, go, go to the awards or do anything else like that. And then in uh, Indianapolis, as the convention has just ballooned in size and in number of venues and in number of things going on, you really are, are doing your own personal Gen Con, and you just hope against hope that it overlaps with the personal Gen Cons of, you know, 10% of the 300 closest of your friends that happen to be at Gen Con with you. Yeah, I used to be able to have enough time away from whatever booth I was weaseling at to go around. And sometimes we did this together even was go and get to everybody else's booth and find out what the new hot, amazing thing was. But now between panels and just being deluged at the Pelgrane booth where there are people wanting me to sign books and chat and everything for most of the exhibit hall hours, I have no sense whatsoever of what the new cool thing was this year. If there was a new cool thing, there seemed to be a little bit of heat around or uh, the Fantasy Flight uh, Spartacus game. Uh, but was there anything that you heard a lot about as a, as a new release? I, I know that a lot of people were really excited about Fantasy Flight's uh, standalone Netrunner that they released using the uh, Android imagery from their Android game. Not Android as in Magic Phone, but Android as in their attempt at a Philip K. Dick mystery in space. Uh, they used a lot of that same branding and rebuilt Netrunner with it, and that seemed to be very popular. There was a limited supply, and there was a giant line, and everyone was crowing about whether they were the last person to get one. I heard two separate people say that they got the last copy of Netrunner, so um, I, I guess the system worked for them. And then Fantasy Flight also uh, dropped a beta of their Star Wars game at the basically kind of at the last minute, and a lot of people were very excited to get that, and that was basically just the you know the manuscript roughly laid out and roughly bound uh, with no art or, or with minimal art. But it, you know, will help to build a buzz for their Star Wars game, and ideally they'll use the feedback to do uh, playtesting and uh, final tweaks. It's interesting how the Ashcan tradition, which sort of uh, came out of the indie movement, has kind of been abandoned by the indie movement, uh, because if you bring out your Ashcan thing one year, the next year uh, your thing is old news, uh, has kind of been adopted by the bigger players now because if you're promoting something with a long window and it's a big product and it's an exciting idea that people want to get a sense of, that now there's, I think, more demand in that space for the preview edition that gets everybody excited and playing and playtesting here ahead of time. Yeah, I think uh, Paizo really proved the, the worth of that model when they released the uh, the Alpha manuscript for Pathfinder 
uh, a year before they released the game and came back with a huge amount of playtesting. They worked that into the game and then they sold just a remarkable amount of copies of that uh, addition to people who basically had already got all the rules for free. So they proved that that model works, and I think that helped skeptical publishers sort of embrace it. Right, because it doesn't just work, but it, it and it doesn't just help you playtest, but it builds your cu- community of people who are excited about it and promoting it to others. So it, you get a sort of a double bump of excitement when the first, when the uh, ash can or preview uh, version comes out and then that kind of builds all the way to the the final release yeah uh in other news i think that uh, asmodee had something terrific that people would talk about but i literally never got to that corner of the hall so i never got to see it uh and then there was rumors and uh whisperings in in dark places of other terrific games that had come out but it was you know, very vague. It, it was it was odd. I mean, it used to be, like you said, that you and I could walk around and see everything and figure out what the cool thing was and have confident answers for people. And even back when I was doing Out of the Box, I would make sure to get copies of any role-playing game that looked new or uh, category-breaking or whatever. But this, you know, I haven't done the column in the last couple of years, and so it's a little uh, less seemly for me to go around and demand free games from people. So I don't really know what's out, but people are still asking me, and it it, re- it really becomes a matter of, well, uh, I wrote the new hotness column uh, in the program book. Probably about two-thirds of those are out, so if any of that looks interesting, that's probably the one for you. And the thing that sort of seemed to be floating about, not as this year's thing, but as next year's thing, is that people are... I ran into multiple people who are planning what I think is going to be the next big thing in tabletop, which is integration with apps and tablets and iPhones. So there were a bunch of people who were floating very ambitious sounding plans for different forms of online play, ranging from things that would uh, leverage or parallel uh, Google Hangout, which is, I think, a brilliant, if not yet fully realized outlet for online gaming to uh, experiences that would totally happen on the uh, on the iPad or uh, on the iPhone, and also uh, games that integrated physical components with apps. Now, some of those already exist, but it does seem like this is not the year where those broke, but the year where there was a, a great rippling in the forest, as it were, uh, in that whole area. Yeah, I had two separate conferences, or conferences, <laughs> drunken palavers, with uh, two separate uh, designers who were fairly big wheels in, in their respective fields, both of which independently said, yeah, I think I'm going to look at uh, this uh, iBook space, or I'm going to look at tablet games, or I'm going to look at whatever. So it's, you know, it's something that's certainly in the air, and I don't think we're going to be shocked when the first one comes out, and I hope that we're going to be pleasantly surprised at how well it does. And uh, receive some accolades and eager gratification uh, at the Pelgrane booth. Uh, your game, Knight's Black Agent, sold like a crazy person. Yes, or actually even better than a crazy person. I mean, with one or two crazy person exceptions, yeah. Yes. Uh, also, uh, we sold three of our uh, advanced reading copy editions of the... Uh, two of the three Palgrane Press's Stoneskin Press Fiction line. Uh, so that would be Shotguns v. Cthulhu and The New Hero 1. And we are reduced to just a few copies of The New Hero 2. We got all the authors together to uh, sign the books on a Sunday, and it was great to have that sort of sense of community between all the disparate writers on those books, which you often do not get with uh, short story collections. And then, of course, uh, you were triumphant at the Ennies. I, I was triumphant at the Ennies. I won two silver Ennies for uh, writing for GURPS Horror and for best supplement for GURPS Horror. 
uh, GURPS Horror 4th Edition, which is my expansion of GURPS Horror 3rd Edition, which is my uh, recapitulation of Nightmares of Mine, which when Iron Crown went bankrupt, the rights to which returned to me. So Steve was nice enough to say, that looks like GURPS Horror in there. Why don't you get it out? And that has been uh, fairly well received by the GURPS community. And I'm really, really delighted that it was well received by the not GURPS community because with a lot of um, more involved rule sets, it seems like there's sort of a a, 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 a tight uh, Brownian seal between the, those fans and the larger game community. So it's it's nice to see, you know, a broader Annie's audience uh, voting GURPS Horror uh, up for those uh, properties. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a terrific book, obviously, but um, I'm, I'm really glad to see it win an Annie as opposed to just win the love and admiration of all GURPS fans everywhere. So the process of putting that together, you started with uh, the original GURPS Horrors were by... Uh, other talented writers, and then you brought your uh, Nightmares of Mine material to it. What was the process of putting that together? Well, the, the GURPS Horror 3rd Edition um, came about because Steve had hired me to write GURPS Cabal, which was expanding a sort of a, a monster frame or a villain frame from the 2nd edition of GURPS Horror into its own book. And since I was doing that, that meant that GURPS Horror 2nd would rapidly need to be replaced by GURPS Horror 3rd, and Steve thought that it would make sense for me to write both books, and we took uh, Nightmares of Mine as the sort of the basis. Uh, Scott Herring and J.M. Caparula had written a terrific book in GURPS Horror 2nd Edition. Scott's GURPS Horror 1st Edition was terrific. It was just, you know, terrific back in 1987 or sometime like that. And so, uh, basically, it was just identifying the best parts of uh, those two GURPS books, uh, taking out the things that we didn't need anymore. There was uh, Victorian setting information and... There was uh, 1920s setting information, both of which had been superseded by other GURPS books. So we had some space, and into that space I put all the non-Iron Crown uh, rule set material from Nightmares of Mine, plus a notion of monsters as embodied symbolic fears, which gave me a, a way to organize the monster thing without it just being an endless bestiary chapter, talk about how to use them in a story and how to use them in a game. And that worked so well that when it came time to do GURPS 4th edition, uh, it, it was simply a matter, not simply, but it was mostly a matter of just taking that material and adding, you know, more material to map the uh, developments in the horror field that have happened since the first, uh, since the third edition came out. And in terms of working the material together, it's the GURPS Horror 2nd was such a great book that in most cases, if it, you know, overlapped with Nightmares of Mine. I just used it. But in many cases, Nightmares of Mine had taken a more uh, holistic view of, 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 you know, the nature of horror, the nature of horror storytelling, how to lay out a, a scenario from soup to nuts, how to lay out a campaign from soup to nuts, a lot of advice that just had not been present in the second edition. So it was, it was really a matter of just sort of laying down new material around the old material. Uh, very little got, you know, torn out except for the structural reasons that I talked about earlier. So how has horror changed from first edition to fourth? How does that track the development of the genre? In a lot of cases, it, uh, I mean, for example, whole new genres have, have come out. J-horror, uh, survival horror became gigantic between first edition and fourth. Uh, the romantic component to horror became more immediately uh, visible to uh, people with uh, Stephanie Meyer's Twilight coming out. So there needed to be a, a topics about that. I think that uh, GURPS Horror 1st Edition and 2nd Edition came out before White Wolf. So 
the White Wolf expectation of playing uh, the, the, the characters as the monsters, playing out their internal torment, uh, creating an emotional gothic world out of uh, monster stories is something that, uh, while it was present in, the, in sort of the larger horror uh, milieu, was not present in GURPS horror. And so I was able to sort of take that, uh, the, those elements from the White Wolf sensibility and try and explain them to, port them to, set them up for the GURPS sensibility. And so how would you contrast those two sensibilities? Because obviously it's the same. If you're taking the same material, how is it treated differently in uh, people who think the way vampires thinks versus the way people think who think the way GURPS thinks? Vampire is a much more forgiving rule set than GURPS is. Uh, vampire is a much uh, more impressionistic rule set. And so when you are trying to create an impressionistic emotional feel in a system like GURPS, you need to identify sort of specific effects on advantages, disadvantages, self-control numbers, things like that. And then you also just need to provide the kind of advice to GURPS players as to how to structure a story that, in, in fairness, the vampire books also applied to their uh, audience. The, you know, this is a, the, the, in, this is an operatic tale. This is a story where emotion is the, is the fundamental component. These are the themes that you want to hit. Uh, I used the more generic horror themes rather than the specific vampire themes. But, uh, you know, the question of if the world is corrupt, does this inform the story? Does this prevent uh, some aspect of your story? What's the f fundamental symbolic meaning of a campaign in which you're telling uh, you're setting it in a fallen world that can't be redeemed versus a world that can be redeemed? And it, it's just questions like this that had not come up in a game book that fundamentally was about giving, you know, game statistics for uh, things to shoot as opposed to turning those things into characters. Now, there was some excellent stuff in second edition about personalizing the threat, about giving it uh, motives and things like that. That was just sort of standard, uh, you know, good old drama 101 advice. But in terms of expressing the symbolic content of the monsters, that was something that I added uh, partly based on what White Wolf had done and then partly based on what I'd seen reading horror for and watching horror for decades. And so, uh, speaking of horror and the Ennies, uh, also we uh, were delighted to see uh, Paula Dempsey get a gold Ennie for her uh, very first book, which is uh, The Book of the Smoke, uh, to which you contributed uh, uh, some material along with uh, Steve Dempsey. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about what that uh, was and uh, why it was so awesome that you all got to go up on stage and claim an award. Uh, the Book of the Smoke is an in-character, in-game book a guide to London by a uh, occultist member of a secret society, a fellow, um, Augustus Darcy, who is found mysteriously dead uh, in 1934, and his publisher assembles his notes into a book. Uh, the book is entirely without game reference, entirely without any sort of connection to the Bookhounds of London, which was the campaign frame that it was sort of meant to echo. Uh, instead, it's a pure systemless, a guidebook to occult London. Uh, we added some Cthulhu mythos because obviously Trail of Cthulhu is the is the core overarching book, and most people who are playing in 1930s London are going to be playing one or another form of Cthulhu mythos games, so that makes sense. Uh, Paula, of course, had a terrific understanding of ghost lore, sort of the way that occult uh, uh, movements and societies are structured, uh, and occult beliefs, and I just sort of added uh, random uh, things out of Charles Fort and a couple of uh, little uh, rumors and innuendos that I'd picked up from my own research for Bookhounds of London. 
So I think that what people were responding to, not just Paula's note-perfect evocation of 1930s tone and theme, and also to the wide variety of crazy things that uh, you can find if you just start looking for the occult in London, but I think they were responding to the sort of the utility of the book, the way that it it's small enough and digestible enough and uh, in tiny sort of geographically delimited pieces that you can hand it to a player and they can look at one part and get a story out of it. They can look at another part and get a story out of it. And we don't have to sort of sit there and hold their hand and say, uh, 50 Berkeley square is the most haunted house in London. Here are all the ghosts. A stranger hires you to go look at the 50 Berkeley square. We don't have to add that last part. Uh, gamers are capable of looking at that and saying, huh? So this most haunted house in London holds the a large, impressive book dealer. That's probably significant. We should go look into that. Or they can find uh, my uh, mention of the Coventry Street Vampire and say, well, I'll bet that they're still around. Or when I mention the, the urban legend that he was buried in Highgate Cemetery by an American adventurer, they can look for the adventurer. They can go to Highgate Cemetery and look for vampires. There's a number of possibilities that just spring out of that sort of boiling down the fundamental weirdness of London into immediately accessible immediately grabbable hooks. I, I love the name Coventry Street Vampire as if, you know, every third street has its own vampire and they need to be uh, carefully distinguished from one another. Well, one of the questions, uh, open questions in London vampirology is, was the Coventry Street Vampire the same as the Harmonsworth Vampire? And uh, is are either of those vampires the same as the Highgate Cemetery Vampire? Well, I, I didn't expect it to get from the any awards to this, but now that you brought it up, what, who are these three vampires and why might they be one or two vampires? Uh, I think that they might be one or two vampires just because people like uh, connecting things. It's the same reason where we say, well, obviously Sherlock Holmes must be related to Arsene Lupin because they're both awesome. So the uh, Coventry Street Vampire was a mysterious assailant that attacked three people in 1922, I think, in Coventry Street. I don't have my copy of the book open in front of me, uh, but the uh, but they got into Charles Fort as a mysterious, unexplicable case. And uh, people... Uh, refused to describe, in Fort's words, their assailant, which is just perfect for horror. And so uh, the, high, the Highgate uh, vampire happened, uh, I think the sightings mostly centered in the 1970s, though obviously people could adduce, you know, people saw something in Highgate previously and afterward. But the notion that it was a vampire, I think, is from the 1970s, the sort of the boom in self-styled occult masters who saw how much money Crowley had managed to make out of it every so often and uh, decided that they wanted to be the uh, the chief vampire hunter for England or something. And so the Highgate vampire was a, was a series of, of ghost sightings uh, or vampire sightings. I don't know if there were any actual attacks ever reported, though there might have been. But since Highgate Cemetery is creepy and weird and awesome, it, it seems like the kind of place you'd put a vampire, even if there wasn't one. It, it seems if there were no attacks, that's kind of a, a low uh, a low bar for qualifying, qualifying as a vampire. Well, I'm not going to say... Uh, for sure there were no attacks, but I will say that I don't remember there being attacks. But then again, since that postdates Charles Fort, I haven't read the primary sources as much. So this may have just been a vampire that made people feel weird and icky. Yeah, he was a psychic vampire who drained out uh, your will to question whether or not he was a vampire, maybe. So to loop back to uh, the Ennies, I was lucky enough to get up a couple of times. Uh, one to uh, with Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, who uh, adapted my gumshoe rule system to Pathfinder in a product called Lorefinder. And that was flabbergasting uh, because that product, as far as I knew, had kind of flown under the radar. Uh, but I guess enough people uh, checked it out and saw the benefits of 
bolting the gumshoe, you always get the information approach onto uh, finding information in a uh, Pathfinder world, and so that was very gratifying. And I also uh, picked one up uh, for uh, best setting for Ash and Stars, um, which I think is an example of how art and presentation can really make something accessible to people, because during playtest, one of the comments that I got back from uh, people uh, was that they weren't quite getting the setting, that they weren't quite sure what the tone was, they weren't quite clicking into it. And so, and really all I did was change a couple of lines in the text saying, well, if you're having trouble figuring out the attempted tone here, because Ashen Stars is uh, an homage to various uh, space opera properties, and like space opera TV shows, it uses the procedural structure to take the characters through space adventures, and so it has to feel like all of those shows without feeling like any one of those shows. And so what I wound up saying was basically envision this as the gritty new reboot of a beloved show from the 60s or 70s, uh, and that helped click people into it. And also just the artwork by uh, Jerome Huguenin and Chris Hoof really immediately shows you in a way that text can never do. And that's something that I'm sure you've run into with playtesting as well, that uh, a lot of issues that people have with playtesting are their issues not being able to grapple with just a manuscript, which has no illustrations to give you a sense of tone, no illustrations to help you remember where things are in the text, uh, and no uh, table of contents to help you find things quickly. So it's not apparent from a stack of manuscript papers, whether the rules are poorly organized or you just haven't got the things, the tools that organize it for you yet. So that was a, a, a another uh, prize because Ash and Stars, and I should hasten to say these are both uh, Silver Any Awards um, for both uh, Lore Finder and for Ash and Stars setting, uh, that really in years past at the Ennies we've seen, uh, you know, a big... Uh, fandom for uh, fantasy role-playing, uh, understandably so, since that's still the big kahuna of the genre. Uh, this year we seem to see uh, Cthulhu uh, worming his way uh, with his uh, award-grabbing tentacle various awards. Um, and so to have a, a, a science fiction or space opera game uh, pick up a silver was uh, quite gratifying. Well, I think part of it is, as you say, that notion that this is the gritty reboot of the 1960s beloved TV show that preceded it. That's an, that's, that, uh, that's, I think that's a kind of meta hook that a lot of people, uh, in, uh, I, for lack of a better term, the sort of, uh, indie game space can immediately recognize. And I think it also works really well with getting what the tone of the game should be. I mean, that's, that's one of the master class in how to summarize a setting is that notion. The other thing that I wanted to mention uh, in that context was that good art uh, really helps something like science fiction or something like fantasy, good pr production design in general, because we don't live in a science fiction, well, we live in a science fictional world, but not in one with spaceships and uh, insect aliens. And so when you look at something like the little black books of Traveler, you get, you get sort of an aesthetic of the world, but no two people's traveler universe are quite the same. But if you look at something like Star Trek, everyone's Star Trek is the same because there's models and, and pictures and photo books and, and a TV show. And the same thing. And I think that's important for something like Ashen Stars to really build itself up. Similarly, you can say that about 13th Age or, or any other 
uh, fantasy uh, game that is built around a specific world, Glorantha, uh, rather than out of a sort of generalized melange of all fantasy illustrations for 50 years, the way that Dungeons and Dragons is. But when you write a game about spies and vampires, it's set in the modern day world. Everyone knows what a vampire looks like. Everyone knows what spies look like. It's a lot easier, I think, for people to say, oh yeah, I sort of, I, I, I sort of get it. And if they've seen the Bourne trilogy, they know it exactly what it looks like because it looks like that. So I think I get to cheat by, by setting my games in uh, more immediately accessible things. And when something like Ash and Stars, uh, reaches out and, and grabs a well-deserved any, I think you're right that a lot of that goes to Jerome and to Chris. But I, obviously, I think a, a good part of it also goes to you creating something that Jerome and Chris can can interpret uh, interestingly. If you'd just sort of written, and again, not to keep bagging on Traveler, but if you'd just written Traveler, you know, they might have gone two, three, five different directions with it, and the book wouldn't have had a unified feel. Uh, in addition to uh, acceptance, uh, you were busy on a lot of panels this year. You were a, a, an industry guest of honor. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, used to, uh, relish that job, but I am glad that I do not have to do that number of panels anymore. So how many different seminars did you participate in this year? Uh, well, as it transpired, I participated in six panels, actually seven panels, because I somehow forgot to write down one of them on my, uh, website, which is where, or my prints, my, uh, live journal, which is where I was using to keep track. So the, uh, panels were a combination of, Industry Insider Guest of Honor panels and specific company panels. Shane Ivey of Arc Dream is very fond of putting me on panels. And Simon always loves to run his gumshoe panel uh, for good reason, because it lets us sort of take the temperature of the alpha gumshoe audience and figure out where to go from there. It's been very interesting over the years to see the uh, sorts of questions being asked in the gumshoe investigative panel, because... Uh, originally, uh, we would do it and most people would have questions about investigative role playing and we would then explain Gumshoe to them. And now, uh, this year we've had a whole kind of arc where it's a full room of people asking questions about Gumshoe and so they're asking very sort of higher level, uh, questions about the game, which, uh, you know, supports the idea that people are, uh, more people are playing it and running it and, uh, no longer need to be introduced to it. Yeah, I, I think that, um, it's, I think it's always more interesting to, for for us as designers to talk about, you know, advanced hints and advanced notions and play with that than to go once again over the, you always find a clue if you have the investigative ability, which, you know, is, it's not like that isn't vital, but we've said, we've each of us said it a million times. And I think it's sort of more fun, if, if more selfish of us to be able to say, well, this is what we're thinking of doing and this is how we'd like to spin it. And this is a kind of a thing that we've seen in our own play. And this is all the different sort of specific hints that we've been able to pull in. Uh, partially thanks to panels like that. There must be a lot of interest uh, in Arc Dream because uh, they're revving up their uh, new Delta Green role-playing game. Uh, what scoops and news did we get from uh, from their quarters? Uh, from Arc Dream, I was on three panels. I was on Superheroes and Alternate History, and I was on uh, Delta Green, the role-playing game, and I was on a Zombies in Survival Horror role-playing uh, panel that I had forgotten about that uh, <laughs> had I not been leaving the gumshoe system panel at four and had it not been scheduled for immediately across the hall, I would have missed entirely. So, uh, so I, I you did, lurched like a zombie into the uh, seminar. Like unto. 
yeah, the Delta Green uh, skinny is that it is going to happen. It is going to be its own standalone game. It is going to be backwards compatible with BRP, but it will not be BRP uh, entirely. I mean, it'll be BRP based, uh, uh, but it'll have a number of fairly clever mechanics, uh, some of which I don't know if we've uh, spilled. The big spillage was the theme of the book, uh, which is be careful what you wish for. You know, back in the 90s, uh, people in Delta Green were wishing, gosh, I wish we had legitimate security clearances, and I wish we could just call on the resources of the federal government to help us with this investigation, and I wish Majestic would go away. Well, in the 21st century, all of those wishes came true. And guess what? This being the Cthulhu universe and the federal government, none of that helped. <laughs> so it's the post-post-9-11 uh, uh, take on Delta Green. Yes, right. Um, we, this is the after... Um, all of the uh, security agencies have been multiplied 10,000-fold in money and reach and unaccountability. Unaccount Strangely, that does not make things better in the world of the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, nor in ours, perhaps. Uh, yeah, perhaps indeed. Um, and so which uh, industry guest of honor panels did you take uh, part in? I was on an alternative history panel with Dennis Detwiller, which was huge fun. Dennis is just a delightful human being on every level, and this is his first Gen Con, I think, in a decade. And so it was just great fun just to be up there with Dennis riffing on stuff. And uh, his sort of uh, takeaway approach to a game is he wants a game that will make the players uh, work to find the fun. And then they will value those little nuggets of fun uh, more than they would value fun that was given to them freely. And my approach to a game is just to... Uh, dump fun on the players until they drown in it. And so our, our two differing approaches made for really interesting uh, panel talk. Now, as I understand, there was a sort of a unlabeled Ken's time machine moment when you were asked to uh, create an alternate history where the Fez uh, retained its popularity as a piece of headgear. Yes, this is one of those great things that happens on alternative history panels, which is why I always like to be on them. Uh, the, we had a couple of guys dressed as the Matt Smith doctor with their fezes and, uh, Dennis, we hadn't, we were, you know, short of questions because people are unaccountably shy at these things. And Dennis said, you fez boy, you must have a question. And so the guy thinking he would stump us said, uh, all right, give us an alternate history where the fez is the accepted headgear. And fortunately, uh, one of my friends in the university of Chicago, uh, history program was a, uh, Ottomanist. And so I knew a great deal about the early Ottoman Empire and was able to sort of, with no perceptible pause, look at him and say, well, that's simple. In 1484, <laughs> the Ottoman Turks captured the city of Otranto in Italy. And it, it was it, it, this is what Babe Ruth must have felt like when he called his shot in Wrigley Field. It was just magical. If, if they paid you for panels, that would be why they paid you. I think that that is the, the, the reason that I get to be on panels is, is because of such moments. And then the other panels that I was on, I did History Panic and History Panic with Jason Morningstar, which was tremendous in its own way because Jason is tremendous in his own way. Uh, he's the author of, uh, among other things, Grey Ranks, the uh, game of emotional damage in the uh, Warsaw Uprising of 1944. He's a phenomenally his historically minded game designer and just a terrific talent. And also, of course, co-designer of Fiasco while we're, you know, burying the, the lead there. And so that was a, a great, great uh, a panel to be on with him. And I was on the Homebrewer's Guide to RPG World Building with Wolfgang Barr, T.S. Lukert, Rich Thomas, and Rodney Thompson. And that was just a good old-fashioned, you know, 
tell me what's wrong with my world and why is it boring. Uh, here's how to make uh, any world interesting type panel. Sort of very old school, great fun. Wolfgang is a delight. One of my unaccomplished goals of any Gen Con is just to figure out some excuse to spend four hours talking to Wolf. And I've so far... I don't think I've spent four hours talking to Wolf total <laughs> in in my life, but uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a it's, it's a goal to dream for. And then TS is terrific, and and Rich Thomas. But that's the other frustrating thing about Gen Con is that there are people who you consider uh, not only your colleagues but your close friends who you may only see that four days a year, and maybe you know if you're lucky, some other convention you get to see them another couple of days a year. So there's this sort of frantic effort after. Uh, each night in the or each day in the trade hall to find a place to get together and to have long exciting talks with uh, more people than you can possibly have long exciting talks for and because of the way that indie is sort of uh, laid out and the paucity of uh, places where you can sit and talk and still be served a beverage after what feels like 10 15 p.m <laughs> uh, that uh, there's sort of a constant a roving flow of people trying to find where everybody is. And I'm sometimes I'm not sure if anybody is anywhere rather than just people being in transit from place to place. Uh, but, you know, that's a- another part of Gen Con, and that's why uh, we're all so sleep-deprived is because we, you know, want to steal another hour or two to get to talk to everybody, and then before we know it, it's 3 a.m., and uh, you've got maybe another few hours of sleep before your body wakes you up ready for the exhibit hall the next morning. Yeah, th- th- there's a, a tantalus-like quality to Gen Con now. I mean, you're, you're being completely sleep-deprived. You always know that there's someone you want to talk to that will talk to you if you can find them. It's, uh, you know, we're we're probably just uh, two or three more uh, iterations of Gen Con expanding into this whole thing turning into a Beckett play. Yes, uh, it'll be uh, waiting for game designers. Right. Speaking of uh, literature, however, Robin, you were uh, bringing the literature game design quincunx, or whatever you call it, over to the Writers' Symposium, were you not? That's right. There's a whole other, speaking of whole other tracks of Gen Con that one doesn't get a chance to experience, there is... Uh, has been for several years uh, a series of seminars uh, and readings and events targeted to uh, genre writers, and they're not. Uh, and it includes some people who are re- writing tie-in fiction or who are known for tie-in fiction, but other people who are uh, writing science fiction and fantasy and now paranormal romance. And so there's a whole lot of uh, uh, seminars where uh, with large numbers of attendees, and then there are smaller workshops. Uh, where there are a smaller number of people are allowed to attend so that they can ask very particular questions about what it is that they uh, want to know, whatever thing they're stuck with in their current manuscript. And so I participated in one on advanced plotting uh, with John Helfers, uh, who has a lot of credits in uh, ranging from sort of crime and thriller to uh, fantasy and science fiction, and he's done a lot of collaborations with people. Uh, and Matt Forbeck, uh, the a uh, lean, mean, uh, writing machine who's uh, currently engaged in this crazy scheme to kickstart 12 novels, which he will write over a period of 12 months. And uh, allegedly, he is only a couple of weeks behind at this point. And so we talked about our varying approaches to uh, plotting and how we uh, set out to do that. We were all uh, the outline is your friend kind of guys, as I think you have to be in order to uh, be... Uh, successful in the world of commercial fiction. If you're uh, working in the, the realm of literary fiction and you have a, a teaching job and you're getting grants that you can 
uh, afford to work on a manuscript uh, over a period of years and years and just sort of dive in and write and explore and then re-sculpt it and then re-sculpt it again and redraft. But uh, if you are uh, in the commercial sector, you have to produce it in a certain period of time or you're just it's not going to be uh, worth it to you. So you have to learn the tricks and discipline of plotting ahead of time. And so uh, we had a continuum of the de- on the degree to which people uh, carefully plot out what they're doing. Everybody outlined, but the amount of obsessiveness uh, ranged from Matt's uh, very sort of strategic laid-back approach where he's very careful about the amount of work that he puts in ahead of time and really balances that very well with me on the other end of the continuum where I, before I even write a uh, an outline, I create a beat-by-beat diagram in car- campaign cartographer, uh, now using the Hamlet's hit points beat system to track uh, developments in the story. And so map everything out, and then I write the outline. And so the consequence of that is that when you get to the actual writing process, that it's not that you're not discovering new things anymore, but that the new things that you're discovering can be deeper things about the characters and the theme and images, rather than just, oh, gee, how does he get out of this trap? Or, you know, how does this guy know this when he should, uh, when I need him not to know that? Or, you know, the, the sort of, so that gets the mechanics of storytelling hopefully out of the way. Although midway through, you always get to a section of your plot that you thought made sense until you sit down to write it, and then you find a giant hole in it and have to kind of work around But you'd be even in more trouble, I think, if you're not uh, carefully plotting. And so we had questions, and without giving away the questions that people had since they refer to their own works in progress, that were often about, you know, I'm, I've started writing this thing, but I've got this structural issue, or uh, I've uh, you know, what are the pitfalls of this particular uh, structure versus that particular structure? So it was a really interesting look at a whole other side of Gen Con. Now, of course, that would be uh, pretty commonplace at a literary science fiction convention, but I've uh, written eight novels now, and I'm supervising a, a short fiction line. Coming at things from the gaming side, that's not a, a culture that I'm familiar with yet. So hopefully I had some of my own uh, weirdo insights that uh, were helpful to some of the people there at the uh, at the seminar. I also did a Pathfinder Tales panel, speaking of fiction, and uh, that was one where uh, it was readers of the fiction line uh, who were asking questions about it, and uh, uh, Richard Lee Byers was there, uh, Dave Gross, the uh, line editor for the fiction, James L. Sutter, and uh, Ed Greenwood made a brief cameo to announce that he's uh, branching out into writing uh, fiction for uh, Paizo, so that's an interesting development in the world of D&D and D&D-flavored uh, tie-in fiction. But the discussion there uh, did tend to revolve around the uh, things that you tend to talk about in a, a panel on tie-in fantasy fiction. So, for example, there was the question of uh, how much uh, rulesiness you want to find in the game book, right? Because on one hand, Writers, readers do not want to hear the dice falling as you're describing things in a uh, uh, fantasy book, uh, even if it's a tie-in book that relates to a game. But on the other hand, if you do things that contradict the way the rules 
work in the game, you're going to hear about it. Yeah, if the, if the sleep spell put too many people to sleep too fast or something. Right. And, and magic is especially tricky because in a fantasy world, that's just a physically real thing. It's a physically real thing that we do not have in our world, but it's portrayed in the games as fairly mechanistic, and it's portrayed as the people using the magic being able to understand it pretty readily. So that introduces all sorts of weird questions like, do characters know that they've just leveled up? Um, <laughs> if you take the D&D magic system literally and the uh, various offshoots in D&D, uh, magic users should absolutely know that they've gone up a level because they can cast spells. And there's been, uh, in most settings, thousands of years of spell casting where they could have all figured out and gotten together and you know compared notes and realized that they're operating on some sort of a level system. And so... Uh, and then you get to the kind of uh, game rulesy things that, even though they're in the game as game artifacts, you never want to address in a uh, fictional setting because they sort of break the idea of people in that world being like people that we uh, recognize as being in some way human. So if there was really a world where, fairly trivially, for 10,000 gold pieces worth of diamonds, you could get somebody brought back from the dead, the effects on society and political systems and people's uh, behavior and emotions would be incalculable. Those people would be alien beings. But, of course, you don't want to acknowledge that because you don't want to... Uh, it might be interesting as a change of pace to create a fantasy series or novels where you kind of acknowledge the extent of the changes that that would uh, ring on any society... But in general, you want the characters to remain accessible within a sort of a fantastical fairy tale swords and sorceries sort of setting. And so that's something that you can't acknowledge. Or, you know, even the fact that people are in regular communication with the gods, the gods can essentially are not only palpably real and interested in human events, they can, you know, essentially send you emails at any time. Again, that would be an enormous a change of society that uh, most fantasy uh, tie-in novels don't and probably shouldn't acknowledge. Yeah, the notion of um, sort of the differing uh, uh, allegiances that you owe to the fans on the one hand, to the rule set on the other, to the novel and to the reality of the world and to the reality of the game worlds that uh, the fans are playing in, that hopefully they want to be able to recognize your your novel as a part of or as an adjunct to say that, oh, no, we want to go, uh, you know, be near the world wound now that Robin has written this awesome novel about it. Uh, we're going to send our guys over there. And they have, I guess, sort of a right to expect that they'll still be able to play Pathfinder when they get there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, and of course, it's also a case of uh, there are some things that readers think they want until they get it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think definitely something that far in either of those directions is something that they... Uh, say they want, but uh, maybe don't. Yeah, now, are the questions that you get uh, at a Pathfinder uh, seminar, are they uh, appreciably different than you get at, a, at, at the more normal, um, uh, like, like if you were doing a seminar for, uh, uh, for, for, a, for a more normal uh, literary science fiction audience? Um, is the gaming audience questions different from the science fiction audience questions would be? Um, I think the differences are that uh, a... Gaming audience is buying into a whole line of fiction. They're there for fiction set in a particular world, and they may be very, very focused on that line, and they may know a lot about that particular 
uh, line of fiction. So the questions tend to be uh, more specific, uh, and they tend to sort of uh, bounce off the fact that, you know, I've read uh, five or six of these books in this series, and, and are you going to do more of this, or are you going to do more of that? Uh, whereas, uh, uh, so I think it, it's probably a matter of tightness of focus that you would get at those events versus, you know, if you've got a bunch of people who all have their independent uh, standalone either series or novels, uh, first of all, you're not necessarily going to have everybody in the audience is might be there to see one of those people, but wouldn't necessarily be familiar with the other people at the panel, or just the, you know, the fact that they're writing disparate things and not a single property that people are engaged in. Now, I guess you would get a similar thing in, uh, you know, if there are a panel for people working on a line of Star Trek novels or Star Wars novels. But again, those uh, are different in that those are driven uh, by a property in another medium, and the novel is sort of an outgrowth or an adjunct to that, whereas uh, with a line like the, the D&D novels or the, uh, the various Warhammer and Warhammer fantasy novels, uh, that they are kind of the primary drivers of the IP content, that the games don't create a single narrative, though they may be people's primary experience of those worlds, uh, if uh, their vicarious narrative, the primary delivery system for that is the novels. Now you may, for example, there's uh, a comic line now, uh, Jim Zumpkovich is, uh, is writing uh, for uh, Pathfinder, and you may find in the future that uh, there are other uh, fictional outlets that drive the narrative. But here, if you're really interested in uh, any sort of fictional presentation from the, the world of Pathfinder, it's through the novel, so that your understanding of the gaming world uh, bleeds back and forth between those two things. So I think the sense of emotional engagement setting is the main thing that's different about the questions at a Pathfinder panel. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe there might be some similarities to a Cthulhu Mythos panel, where people are engaged with the mythos in general, and their primary expression of, uh, like you say, vicarious enjoyment of it, even if they're Call of Cthulhu gamers, is going to be through one or another batch of uh, stories, obviously beginning with Lovecraft's, and then everyone else's are going to be important one way or the other. One, one gang might read all the Delta Green novels, and another gang might read all of Cody Goodfellow's novels, and another gang might read, you know, Shotguns v. Cthulhu and other fine anthologies. So, yeah, you'd, you'd see sort of a, a more of an orbiting around the common property type questions. Although there, there's the fact that, you know, uh, the Lovecraft stuff has escaped the intellectual property barn. And so uh, there's no one person who's directing uh, what will and won't be published with uh, tentacles in it th this coming year. Whereas uh, with something like the Pathfinder line, uh, James uh, Sutter, who's, uh, who oversees it, has a lot of control over what direction they wanted to take it in. And he's got a very particular uh, view of how he wants the novels to be, which is that they are fun, interesting, uh, and he doesn't use this term, iconic hero stories that don't change the world too much, that they're not the big narrative arcs that you would get in a line that was trying to do sort of more epic fantasy. They're not trying to do things that uh, drive the narrative in people's games, but rather sort of create parallel narratives that they can imagine going on while their characters are off having adventures. And so if he were to announce that he was doing things very differently, that would have a big impact in a way that you can't go to a Cthulhu uh, panel and say, well, 
next year, it's the year of Yog Sothoth. Well, there's nothing you could impose on people. Yeah. Uh, you suppose you could set up some sort of Yog Sothoth reward campaign where you paid people extra to write stories about him. Uh, I'd be suspicious of, of that uh, as to who exactly was behind it, though, if anyone offers you too much money to write a story about Yogg Sassoth. Yeah, that's one of those sort of uh, rings its own alarm bells type situations. Yes, especially if he, uh, if when you go to his office, he's got twin leopards on uh, both sides. That's definitely a, a deal breaker there. It's a bad sign in any publisher, frankly. Yes. They've got twin leopards. But that means that their focus is not on the books. Yes, it, it's one of the questions I always ask is, you know, do you pay uh, on acceptance or when uh, the, the game comes out? Obviously, what's your word rate? Uh, what is your track record? And do you have twin leopards in your office? Right. And so far, I think besides Steve Jackson, neither of us have worked for anyone with twin leopards in their office. So that works out pretty well. That does work pretty well. to inaugurate yet another new segment on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. This is called Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. What we're going to do here, uh, to the limpid tears of our sound engineer, who I can already uh, uh, picture his profound suffering that we're about to inflict on him, we're going to take some audio that we grabbed from the Pelgrane uh, investigative role-playing seminar and uh, replay it. Uh, this was recorded on my Magic iPhone, uh, just at the table without a microphone. The sound quality is surprisingly good. Uh, Ken sounds good. Uh, Simon Rogers, who is also participating, sounds perfectly natural. And for some weird reason, I still sound vaguely electronic, which leads me to think that I hear my voice in my own head as normal, but I'm actually an alien robot. Or a, or a fungi from Yugath. Uh, one, one of the two things. If, if my head is in a jar, I haven't been informed of that yet. Uh, so anyway, we're just going to uh, select a few uh, key little snippets and answers from what was a, a Q&A session. Uh, the uh, cues are not that audible, so we're just going to do little intros to let you know what the questions were. And uh, uh, we're going to try to mostly stay away from things that we've already talked about too much on the podcast. Here Ken talks about the design process for Knight's Black Agents from a different perspective from our previous Among Our Many Hats segment, introducing the concept of the danger information loop. Okay, the uh, uh, Nice Black Agents is a vampire spy thriller in the tradition of the Bourne trilogy, John Frankenheimer's Ronin, Luc Besson's Taken, the sort of the modern uh, take on the uh, action thriller. And the thriller has been, uh, since almost since its birth, been uh, derided as a mystery in which the reader already knows who did it, which in one, on the one case is somewhat true. Uh, but in the other case, it uh, undersells the amount of investigation and mystery in the very first thrillers, uh, Eric Ambler and John Buchan, and then all the way down into modern-day thrillers like uh, Barry Eisler's uh, John Raines series or uh, the Le Carre uh, spy uh, thrillers, which are less thrilling and more mystery because Le Carre began as a failed mystery author before becoming a tremendously successful uh, spy novelist. But the, the question of who is behind it in a thriller is often less salient than how do I get out of this? Or in the proactive tradition of the Bourne trilogy and Taken, where do I go to hit them again harder? 
those are still questions that have to be answered investigatively, from where is the sniper hiding to where do I hide to snipe this guy. Those are both investigatively answerable questions. And the great thing about uh, Gumshoe is that you never slow the game down to deliver that information. So you can literally answer those questions in one story beat if that's what you want to do. Uh, your military science tells you he's probably hiding up in that cleft. Your uh, skill at surveillance, used investigatively, tells you, hide up in that cleft, and when he comes by, snipe him, right? Or you can turn it into a larger thing. You can leave clues. You can have dead bodies and look at blood spatter patterns. However much information you feel like conveying is the amount of information that the story will support. And when I was writing um, uh, Night's Black Agents, I was watching a ton of spy thrillers. I was reading a ton of spy thrillers. And it rapidly was borne in on me that the fundamental economy of the spy thriller is the reward for information is danger. The more you know, the faster you can head into more danger. And surviving the danger will win you more information. And that is true. That's the spy thriller rota, right? It's a danger information cycle until you've gotten to some place that is so dangerous that it had better end the story. Right? You're, you're fighting the big bad, you're in the nuclear reactor as it's melting down, you're at the Soviet uh, sub underneath the, uh, the, the Arctic Ocean, whatever it happens to be, this is the point of ultimate danger, it's where all your information has led you, and that's where the climax of the thriller happens, which led to the next sort of design insight, for lack of a better word, in Night's Black Agents, which is that this will be a game with an actual ending to it. The campaign has a natural ending uh, that when you get to the center of the conspiracy, you're at the center of the conspiracy, and this is where you face down Blofeld, you take down um, uh, uh, Carla, or in this game, you stake the, the lords of the vampires. You, you shut them down in whatever way you've been able to determine vampires need to be shut down. And the basic, once you have those three concepts, that uh, a thriller is a sped up mystery, that the information danger loop is what drives the story, and the story will naturally build to a climax that's pretty much the design process for Knights Black Agents right there in a, in, a, in a nutshell. Then the rest was just stealing Robin's mechanics. Here, Simon Rogers describes the balance between spies and vampires in the game. The way that the vampires are created, which is a kind of mix and match approach, is that the vampires are generally better at fighting than the, than the PCs. So the PCs get slapped very quickly. But the PCs are better at what they do, the, the spycraft, than the vampires. So the PCs have been really, really careful. So there was one scene where um, they wanted to kidnap somebody and they, they parked a van at the back and the van at the front. They were all ready to go. They had their plans in place. And then one other person turned up. They didn't know. They didn't recognize. And they just stopped. They went. They left. Now, that just would not have happened with them in any other game. They would have said, oh, let's go in, all guns blazing. They went, no, we'll blow the mission. That's it. Stop. Off. And that just emerged out of the um, out of the, the the system design and the rules, which is very uh, gratifying. And it uh, also, again, maps uh, both thriller convention and re and realistic behavior. I mean, we, everyone has seen uh, the, the the spy show where you know everything's set up and then some new element is in, and they're like, "Do we blow it? Do we blow it?" and that's not even a decision-making process in Call of Cthulhu. It's like, you know, you're, you're going into the haunted house and like, oh, there's three cultists. Our intel only told us there'd be one cultist. All right, well, extra guns for everyone. <laughs> Here Simon has asked, uh, what about Gumshoe moved into publish it? 
He explains the process that led him to commission me to build him an investigative game. Well, it's kind of, that's kind of back to front, uh, in that I was playing various games and finding that I had to fudge roles for no particularly good reason in order to provide people with information, which to me seemed completely pointless. Uh, why have a system where you have to pretend that you're doing something? Why not have that silly whole thing of pretending to give to Rowling, oh, you've got the information, or worse than that, not give them the information that they need? So as a publisher, I don't have to worry about how things are solved. I just go, hmm, who can I call to fix this? So I emailed Robin and said, look, there's this problem. Uh, you know about designing games. Can you sort this out for me? And um, that's what he did. So that's, that's why I then got the game, play-tested it, enjoyed it. Everybody else play-tested it. To start with, many, many people didn't get these are terrorists at all, not even vaguely. Uh, it took about a year for it to even start taking hold, uh, mainly because people hadn't played it. They just had this strange idea that if you're not rolling the dice, then, then you're not um, earning your information. Uh, and then it seemed the next stage from that What's a, uh, we'd, we'd done lots of horror stuff. What's the best horror investigation game? Surely Call of Cthulhu, without a doubt. And uh, Charlie Crank said, yes, go ahead, do, do a version and with Ken writing it. So, I mean, why would I not publish that? I've been saying not to publish that. Well, I'm perhaps insane is not the right term. <laughs> <laughs> there we are, that's why. And then it was a matter Differently of... Differently insane. Yes, yeah, <laughs> different varieties of, yeah. of insane lead you to yeah. or not to publish role-playing products. Yes. Right. Um, and so it was then a matter of every time we do a new iteration, the, um, the setting uh, and the things that the characters do in the setting, which is always my, my goal. If someone pitches a role-playing game to me, it's what do the characters do in the setting and why do the rules make them do the thing that they're supposed to do in the setting? So every one of the games has something that makes the characters do what they're supposed to do. So in... Uh, in Trail of Cthulhu, it, it's the drive, which has been carried over to other games. But in Knights, Black Agents, and in Ash and Stars, the drive is much more harsh. If you don't follow your drive, terrible things happen. Um, and so, for example, in Knights, Black Agents, one character just blew the, everybody else out to go into a safe house and execute a whole bunch of people. And they were all going on the comms. He said, no, I've cut my comms. And that was just because his drive was triggered. Um, so each of the iterations of the rule set has something in there that makes you behave as you should without you feeling constrained by it. And in fairness, in Knights Black Agents, what makes you behave as you should is that if you don't, vampires will come and eat you. Yeah. I mean, that's there just, that. you know, that, that, that's built into the setting. That's, that's, the, that's the narrative drive. And as you say, mechanically, vampires are much, much tougher than people. So Right. And because it's a thriller, it sort of begins in media res. It, it assumes mm -hmm. from the outset that you are in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in uh, Trail of Cthulhu, it uses this structure of you uh, intimate that there is uh, something odd going on and you investigate that more and then you find out that something horrible is going on and you continue to investigate it. And actually one of the interesting things that we found when people tested our adventures using the Call of Cthulhu rules, they would complain that, well, our players just wanted to get off the island and leave. We just, they, they just left. And it's, so it wasn't the main thing about Gumshoe that they missed when they ran it with a different rule system. It was the secondary thing of the drives, where 
you know, we just assume that, or we, we actually, we don't assume, we make sure that you understand when you create a Trail of Cthulhu character that you are creating the interesting guy that this game implies, rather than the, why are you playing Call of Cthulhu if your character does not want to encounter the mythos? Let's jump now to Robin's tips on improvising mysteries, as inspired by his Trail of Cthulhu meta-campaign book, The Armitage Files. For most improvisational role role-playing games, you kind of play fast and loose, and it doesn't, it's not, doesn't matter so much that the story threads don't always come together because everybody's having such a good time and getting to contribute. But in an investigative game, you have the additional level of challenge of wanting to have a mystery that they're solving that once they think about it afterwards makes, you know, with some loose threads, mostly makes sense. So the way, to, the extra step that I think is... Uh, that you want to take is to take really good notes as you go along as to, you know, and make decisions as you go along as to what seems to actually be happening. So once they are triggered by uh, one of the bits of information in these handouts around which the Armitage Files campaign runs, you actually do make decisions about what is going on based on what they do and what seems interesting. Now, of course, there are some classic techniques that you can use. Uh, you can listen to what the players think is going on and pick the most horrible version of what they think is going on and then add an additional surprise twist to it um, and so that they take you part of the way and then you say, okay, how can I deliver that and then but deliver it in a surprising way? And so once you start doing that, just naturally the way that details accrete in any story, you will start to see connections that make it seem as if, you know, the, the an invisible entity at the table, one hesitates to say Yog Sothoth, but perhaps uh, <laughs> is finding things in the story that you didn't see until they all get together. Because of course, Arm Armitage fires, files is a big toolkit full of little bits and pieces of characters and places and things. And just the act of combining this place with this character makes you ask the question, why is this character associated with that place? And that answer to that question becomes a building block in your mystery as you go along. And so uh, we've had really great responses to Armitage Files. People play it for a long time. And uh, I had some people you know, at the show this year come up and say, we just finished it. We were playing for a year and a half. Uh, we destroyed the world at the end. You know, All those good things you want in an epic level uh, Cthulhu campaign. Um, and Ken is following that up as well. Yes, as as always, uh, Robin does something brilliant and pathbreaking, and I sort of slouch along afterward and um, uh, uh, interpret it for the masses. Um, sort of the the Paul Simon, if you will, of uh, Robin to, to Robin's uh, d d um, guy from Africa. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, the 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 follow-up is the Dracula dossier, which is going to be a, a Knights Black Agents uh, improvisational campaign. And rather than dribble out 17 different letters that you follow the clues along serially, the goal is to drop the whole unredacted novel, Dracula, before the British Secret Service edited it for uh, sources and methods. So, and in addition, then three generations of, three later generations of the British Secret Service have annotated this text. So it's going to be full of clues and leads and pointers and plot threads, 
but they'll be delivered around instead of a giant 180 page document it's a giant 180 page document that everyone in the western world knows by heart so you get dracula dumped on your lap you say this is a real sis case file their first question is not everyone stop and read it their first question is what's going on with van helsing turn to that page and then as they start following down van helsing they'll be arguing amongst themselves well, do we hit Seward next? Do we hit Harker next? What about Lord Godalming? What about Quincy Morris? He's an American. Are there Americans involved somehow? Where in Transylvania is Castle Dracula? We want to find that. They'll be building out their own story based on their reading of Dracula, their understanding of the story. So since they, everyone in the world knows Dracula, you, you can get that instant familiarity that models a spy having carefully read a dossier. And then also it lets us play with a lot of terrific public domain uh, uh, horror, and then present a in, in the in the best Gothic tradition a series of terrible mistakes made by the British Secret Service that is coming back to life to uh, uh, endanger the, the 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 present, and that's the Gothic narrative going all the way back to Castle of Otranto. So, are you envisioning a series of different options for why initially the dossier gets dropped into? Yeah, your lap? there's going to be a whole. It, it, it's basically going to be. There's going to be a, probably a couple of pages of different ways you could get it, and that will be the um, uh, the the, the, uh, the up to the uh, director to decide based on her campaign what's the most likely way that you would get it. Would you you know find it uh, on the body of a dead Al Qaeda courier? Would you um, get it from your shadowy contact smoking a cigarette in the parking garage? Would you steal it from a Russian case file buried in the ruins of? an embassy somewhere. I mean, there's eight million different ways you can get a physical object in a spy game. You know, a, a, a thousand ways to get a MacGuffin. And this would be one of them. And it, uh, I don't know that we're going to write a canonical you get the dossier scenario because I think that that you wanna, already restricts you, wanna, you Yeah, you want to leave it up to each individual campaign. But yeah, I mean, there's there, you, you can think of, you know, ten or a dozen ways just right now. And once I tell Garrett to think of 40 or 50 more, then I'm sure there's going to be lots of good results. Here, the Pelgrane Trio teases future gumshoe games in various stages of development. I don't think we're going to run out of, uh, of settings to, uh, to, to go for. Um, Will Hindmarch is writing a, a post-apocalyptic um, game uh, called Raised, uh, and we have potentially a kind of gothic steampunk one in the, in the sidelines, which uh, uh, Monica... Valentinelli is, is working on, and you are working on Bubble Gumshoe. Yeah, I'm working on Bubble Gumshoe for Evil Hat, which will be the teen detective genre. Uh, basically, uh, <laughs> Veronica Mars, uh, Nancy Drew, um, uh, the, the, uh, the three investigators, the Hardy Boys, um, the John Belair's occult adventures, um, all of that sort of uh, teenager uh, or, or um, you know, tween young adult type. Uh, uh, crime solving and, and problem solving, mostly just because I want a tax deductible reason to watch Veronica Mars over and over and over again. But uh, the, the genre is a terrifically fruitful one, and it's one that no one has ever done a role playing game about, and that's ridiculous because it's formative stories for everyone who grew up reading books in the public library. And I, I mean, though my child is not anywhere close to role playing age yet. I can see, I guess lots of us got into role-playing as fantasy. Most of us were guys in the 80s. But having Most of us. Yeah. <laughs> Most of us. Robin but was actually a, a, a lovely mahogany dresser in the 80s. 
and why the racer as kind of a geek is is good to have some of those ways for teens to get into role playing. Well, I, I don't know necessarily whether or not this will be some sort of magical bullet for getting teens into role-playing. <laughs> when I was a teenager, the last thing I wanted to pretend I was was a teenager. But, um, but it, it'll, it'll serve an unserved narrative uh, niche, and it'll feed an audience that maybe doesn't feel like they've got enough uh, of their kind of fiction. So I think that it's, it, you know, it's all good, as far as I'm concerned. Plus, I just, I just love the genre. I mean, I, I think that when it's done best, the teen detective genre, the teen adventure genre, has so many possibilities that people never really explore. So I'm looking forward to that. I've also got a, a counterinsurgency game that uh, I came up with back when we were doing a lot more counterinsurgency than we are now. But I think counterinsurgency is another great investigative genre that there isn't any games about. And so with, with the werewolves. that's the werewolves, yes. It's called Gagan Werewolf. It would be set in the American occupation of Germany uh, in the, in the uh, you know, right after the war, 1945, 46, 47. Uh, under the premise that the Werwolf resistance movement uh, that uh, uh, Himmler and Goebbels tried to set up was A, uh, successful, and B, had werewolves in it. <laughs> and so it would be a game of you know hunting house to house, killing werewolves while ideally not alienating the entire population of Germany. <laughs> Having conquered post-Gen Con brain freeze to again successfully talk about stuff, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Find our website at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Leave comments, genuflections, and much-needed questions for our Ask Ken and Robin segment. If you're allergic to podcast websites, seek us on your social media platform of choice. Or find us now as a subscription on iTunes. On Twitter, I'm at Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. 